You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The tweets were coming at me fast and furious. I hope you saw this, Dan. I'm sure everyone is sending this to you, Dan. You're going to have to issue a correction, Dan. A correction? Uh, no. An update? Yes. We have discussed semen and vaginal secretions in the novel coronavirus COVID-19 more than once. While it's always been kind of obvious and common sensey that it would be easy to catch COVID-19 if you got close enough to someone who had the virus to actually have sex with that person, and most people with the virus are asymptomatic, so you can't tell who has it just by looking at them, we were initially told that the virus hadn't been detected in semen or vaginal secretions and therefore likely wasn't sexually transmissible. However likely it was to be transmitted during sex, it wasn't going to be a sexually transmitted infection when it grew up which may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it does kind of matter. The more and different ways a disease can be transmitted, the likelier it is to be transmitted. But after being told that the virus wasn't found in these bodily fluids, we were informed by none other than Dr. Jen Gunter herself that the virus hadn't been found in those bodily fluids because they hadn't looked for it, which begged the question, why not? Then we got some reassuring news two weeks ago. They were looking, and the results of a pair of small studies, one of semen, sponges, cum, the other of vaginal secretions, gruel, pussy nectar, clitty litter, found no evidence of the virus in semen or vaginal secretions. But those studies, as I noted when we talked about them, were small. But the headlines were big. No virus in semen or vaginal secretions. Well, a new study came out last week, another study with a small sample size, and the headlines were huge. And people on Twitter wanted to make sure I saw them. Here's the headline from The Guardian. COVID-19 found in semen of infected men. Piece goes on. Chinese researchers who tested the sperm of men infected with COVID-19 found a minority had the new coronavirus in their semen. This opened up a small chance the disease could be sexually transmitted. The virus was found in only six of 38 men tested. A previous small study of 12 COVID-19 patients, the Guardian went on to note, that would be, of course, the study we talked about on the show previously. That study found that all of them tested negative for the presence of COVID-19 in their semen samples. More studies are needed, as The Guardian also notes, the virus in semen has to be new and active to be infectious, and it wasn't clear from the study if that was the case. So as of right now, what we know now, it's been found in semen, but we still don't know if COVID-19 is sexually transmitted, but you'll probably get it if you have sex with somebody who has it. Ugh. Let's just say the semen situation remains fluid. More study needed, and as more information dribbles out, we will blow it at you. But we know more now than we did two months ago, thanks in large part to COVID-19 patients who are participating in these studies. It's like they say, not all heroes wear capes. Some heroes jack off in Dixie cups. And before we get to the show, a quick word to the person who sent me a 4,000-word email attacking me for shaming the dick zombies in the park near my house. I'll own it. The dick zombies do make me a little uncomfortable, and I think that probably came across in my tone. But I don't have to be comfortable with everything, and I can be personally uncomfortable with something while still approving of it and of the people who enjoy it, like Conalingus. 
but I'm going to have to pass on the dick zombie challenge. That's what this particular listener wants me to do once there's a vaccine, once it's safe to go to the park and eat some dicks in the dark. Yeah, no. I like to see the person whose dick I'm eating or who's eating my dick. Call me old-fashioned or call me risk-averse. I just don't really want to wind up accidentally sucking my dad's dick, you know? Now, my dad lives in Phoenix, and he's not gay, and he can't get on a plane right now, and so the chance of that happening is really low. But it can't be mathematically eliminated. And even if you could mathematically eliminate the chance of me sucking my dad off in a pitch-black park, I have uncles, I have brothers, and even if I was an orphan, I'm sorry, the uneliminatable risk of accidentally sucking off Tucker Carlson isn't worth the potential reward of getting to suck off Sean Mendez. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and Mark Marin is here. We have a battle row about sex addiction. Mark Marin also sticks around for the Magnum, which is the subscription Savage Lovecast. It's the same Savage Lovecast, but longer, more guests, more questions, and no ads. You can subscribe to that Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com. But Mark Marin on the Magnum and the micro on today's show. Coming right up. Hi, Dan. 44-year-old husband and father of three here to answer the call for guys to offer quarantine sex stories. My wife and I have been married for over 15 years and have three awesome children. Since the quarantine began, we've obviously had more time together and it's been awesome. She got me into the TV series Outlander, which has a ton of great sex scenes. We binge-watched all five seasons and began to have an almost daily romp in our bedroom in the late afternoons. And for parents of three, you know that's incredible. One particular day after we turned the TV up in the bedroom and locked the door per usual, things began to heat up. We were standing at the foot of the bed making out heavily, but when I would normally guide her to fall on the bed, she began to resist. She started guiding me down, which for her and her submissive nature was very unusual. It happened pretty quick, but just as I was about to give in and kneel in front of her to see where this was going, she pulled away from my lips and whispered heavily, Get on the floor, fucker. Dude, as reserved as she is, this sent me through the roof, and I could not have laid down fast enough. She quickly jumped on top and rode me on the floor, something she knew I'd been wanting to do for a while to feel the firm resistance. We both came hard, and it was incredible. We joked about it for days, and on a funny footnote, during this romp, she got a rug burn on her left knee that she had to nurse for a few days. One by one, each kid would eventually ask Mommy where she got her boo-boo. I enjoyed watching her squirm and explain it, ultimately three different ways. Thank you for calling and sharing. Sorry about mommy's boo-boo we're opening each week's show with a quarantine sex story from a listener if you've got a good one give us a call 206-302-2064 and share your story of quarantine time sex hi dan i'm a 23 year old cis woman in the midwest i've never been in a relationship and i've barely even kissed anybody besides like playful kisses with friends i'm overweight and i have been my whole life and i think i've always attributed other people's lack of interest in me to that, sort of like an excuse. It wasn't until about two and a half years ago that I realized I might be bisexual when I found myself falling in love with a good friend. It's hard for me to know my sexual orientation for sure because I've never had a romantic relationship with anyone, man or woman. 
uh, I went through a phase where I was struggling in my platonic relationships with men because I had an abusive dad growing up. This led to some trauma and resulting depression and anxiety. I was in therapy for a while before quarantine, and I feel I've made great strides. But my current main concern now is figuring out why I haven't been in a relationship and how to make that happen. On top of that, I think I have some internalized homophobia or biphobia, I guess, that I'm trying to overcome, but don't really know how. So my question is, what do you recommend as first steps moving forward for me? I know quarantine complicates all of it, but I think I have a lot of love to give. I know I do. And I think I would be a compassionate, supportive partner. I think of myself as a great friend. I just want something more. So I'd love some advice. I want to share a couple of relevant facts, actually three relevant facts, and try to offer you a little bit of perspective before I send you on to internet dating platforms, on to dating apps, which is all we can do right now. The first fact is there are a lot more overweight people around than ever before. People are trending larger. Also, people are waiting until later in life to begin having sex. The age of sexual initiation has risen. So at 23, you're not so freakishly inexperienced. There's lots of people in your age cohort who are as inexperienced as you are. And you should just put that out there, put yourself out there and not be self-conscious about that. And finally, you know, we're in this moment, as I said, we're internet dating is about all that's available to us. We're all in that same boat. So my advice to you would be to do what so many people are doing right now and take advantage of the dating apps, take advantage of personals websites, which is how the plurality of opposite sex couples meet these days. And it is how the overwhelming majority of same sex couples have been meeting these days is online. Put yourself out there online, get some flattering, take some yourself flattering, but accurate pictures that are recent, share them and Answer the questionnaires on the app uh, about your interests and, you know, share your stats and then you will get responses. People who are attracted to you for who you are, not despite who you are, will respond to your ad. You might get some guff from some haters. You just delete those and move on. It's a risk that everybody runs when they put themselves out there online. There are trolls and assholes. Ignore them. And the stakes are low right now because you have this, not excuse, we, you know, we all are facing this reality where we can't meet up in person at the moment. So people are connecting online. So it really has turned the standard advice that we've been giving people about those, you know, online matchups, which was to not invest too much emotional energy and, you know, 10,000 direct message exchanges or texting or sexting all the time before you meet up the first time. And that's kind of flipped on its head. Go ahead and really connect with somebody online. Exchange as many messages as you want. Sext and text if you want, if you feel comfortable with that person before you meet up because we can't really meet up right now unless you meet up from a nice safe distance, perhaps on a walk if you've met somebody in your area. But give yourself some credit. You know, you had an, uh, an abusive parent. You had to do a lot of work. You're only 23, so – you're young yet and you've done the work and it sounds to me like you're in a really good place to begin to explore in the ways that you can explore right now your sexuality and your romantic interests. And if you are also attracted to women, please go ahead and put that out there. And I would encourage you to look up bisexual activist Robin Oaks who has a terrific definition of bisexuality that I'm constantly sharing with people. 
I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way, and not necessarily to the same degree. A lot of people get it in their heads that they're not entitled to identify as bisexual, to explore relationships with both or all genders, unless they are equally attracted to all, equally attracted to men and women. And that's just not the case. There are a lot of heteroromantic bisexuals out there, a lot of homoromantic bisexuals out there, a lot of biromantic bisexuals out there who may be equally attracted to both. So you can identify as bisexual and make it clear to people that you are still exploring, that you really haven't had any experience in romantic relationships yet. And sometimes people are shy about disclosing that fact because they don't want to be rejected. And of course, you have to see that from a totally different angle. You have to see that from the opposite direction. If somebody runs from you because you're inexperienced, that's not somebody that you would have been safe with as an inexperienced person. That's not somebody you could have trusted to be patient and kind and caring. They've identified themselves in that moment when they bolted as someone who is impatient, unkind, uncaring, and therefore not someone you wanted to have around anyway, so good fucking riddance. Go onto those apps with some confidence about your attractiveness. Not all bodies are to all tastes, but your body is to someone's or many someone's tastes. And go onto those apps feeling entitled to identify for now, as bisexual, and to entertain offers and connections from men and women and everything else in between. Hi, Dan. This may be a question unlike any you've ever gotten. I've been married to my husband for over 40 years, really long time. He's had a lot of health problems, and last year he had his leg amputated. Um, I'm very turned off by his body now. And he would like to resume sexual relations, and I'm just not into it. My question is, after all this time, do I kind of owe this to him? Is it fair for me to like just arbitrarily decide that that part of our lives is over? Please don't tell me that he should go to a sex worker, because that's just not really going to happen. This is unlike any question I've ever received before, and I'm really struggling. You have... Every right to decide you're done with sex. What you don't have is a right in a relationship to unilaterally declare someone else's sexual life to be over. It saddens me that your husband had to get his leg amputated. And now because of that amputation, you find the rest of him physically repulsive and can't connect with him sexually. You also rule out allowing for him to get his needs met elsewhere. You don't have to fuck your husband. None of us has to fuck anybody. But if we're going to declare ourselves done with sex or done with someone sexually and we do not wish to exit that relationship or end that marriage and we don't want that other person to exit the relationship or end the marriage and that other person isn't done with sex – then you have to make an allowance. You have to create an accommodation that works for both partners where you are not obligated to have sex with somebody that you don't want to have sex with anymore for a reason that to me seems cruel but that allows for that person to still have some sexual outlet, sexual release if you want to stay in this relationship if they want to stay in the relationship after you declare yourself done with sex or at least done with sex with them. 
allowing your husband to see a sex worker seems to me a perfectly reasonable accommodation once we're allowed to see sex workers again. You rule it out. You dismiss it out of hand. I don't know what you expect me to do. I can't reach into your husband's brain and remove from it all desire for intimacy with his wife, for sex, for sexual release. That isn't on the table. That That's not possible. So by not wishing to have sex with him yourself because you are repulsed by his body, by the condition of his body now, and perhaps you're still reeling from the amputation, maybe in time you would come to accept his body in the condition that it is currently in. And after 40 years together, I'm sure both your bodies have changed in radical ways. Time is a motherfucking meat grinder and it makes hamburger of us all. And one of the things that a long, long, long ass term relationship needs or, or we expect from it is that even as our bodies change, even as we physically become different people, sometimes unrecognizable, that there's some connection that transcends the physical and allows for there to be a sexual connection that's rooted in an attraction that still exists to the person even if their body is unrecognizable to you. Now, that's presuming a you know a long-term relationship where sex is still important or sex is central. And that's not true of all long-term relationships. Sex may be very important early on in a relationship and well into the fifth decade may be less important for those two people. I'm not one of those sex advice peddlers who thinks that a relationship has to be sexual for it to be loving or or valid. Sometimes we pathologize relationships where the sex has ended in a way that makes people in those sorts of relationships feel as if they're doing love wrong when, you know, if both people are happy and content and neither misses sex, they're not doing love and commitment and, and relationships wrong just because someone else is projecting onto their relationship their own uh, presumed unhappiness if that was their relationship. But that only works. A relationship that's loving and committed was once sexual is not now sexual if both people are content. I think we can assume that your husband wouldn't be content. You wouldn't be calling if your husband wasn't attempting to initiate sex or asking you for sex. You're going to have to get a little bit more creative. Turn off the fucking lights. Don't look. Or allow for him to enjoy pornography. And perhaps if he misses the human contact that you are because of this amputation, no longer comfortable providing him with because you are repulsed by his body in a way that to me, again, after four decades together, seems so cruel. If he misses that kind of human contact, if he was calling me, I would tell him he was entitled to go find it elsewhere. You called me. You told me that he, you don't want him to go find it elsewhere. All right. Okay. You can tell him he's not allowed. You can tell him you're not going to fuck him. You can tell him you're repulsed by his body. You can tell him – I guess you would leave him if he saw a sex worker and I hope that he does what he needs to do to stay married to you and stay sane if that's what he wishes to do and discreetly sees a sex worker and then comes home to you content and your relationship isn't swamped by the resentment he's likely to feel if – your rejection of him is coupled with no intimacy for him ever again. Hello, D. 
Dan. Um, I'm calling you with a question regarding a friend of mine that I've known for well over a decade, and I'd like a little bit of an insight of your insight into this situation. So when I met this person, um, like I said, well over a decade ago, we became pretty quick friends, and and she revealed gradually over time that uh, she and her husband had just gotten out of a really rough time period due to his addiction. They were kind of on the brink of divorce, but he had gone to recovery. He had a sponsor. He apologized to her. He was very remorseful. He was trying to make things better. They were going to counseling together and individually. And and basically, from my point of view, things were working. And this actually went on for quite a few years. He overcame it. They were on a good path. I think there was always a little bit of concern you know, not 100% faith or trust that it was going to be a long-lived thing, but they made it work at the time. So a couple years ago, he actually revealed to her that he was not sober anymore and that he wanted to redefine his sobriety and and that he, he hadn't been sober for about a year. She was obviously really devastated by this, really, really hurt by this, and they did eventually end up getting divorced. It was around that time that she also shared with me what his addiction was. And he was addicted to pornography and masturbation. So whenever she would use the term sober or sobriety, she was referring to him refraining from masturbation and pornography. And I found that when she was talking about him, she would talk about him in in this really negative, like he's a sex addict, I can't trust him, my kids can't be around him a very like dirty and shameful way. And what I'm looking for you is just some insight on the difference between somebody who likes masturbation and pornography and somebody who actually has an addiction. And is it, is it appropriate to use the word sober for somebody who is refraining from masturbation and pornography? Those behaviors are not they're not harmful. I understand that that can be part of, of normal human sexuality. And so I, I just kind of struggle with wanting to support her, but also feeling like, I guess I don't really understand where that line is between a sex addict and and maybe just somebody who likes these behaviors, but their their system, their support system, their family system is maybe seeing them as very negative or troublesome. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, because why not? Mark Marin, stand-up comic, writer, actor, host of the super and huge and important WTF podcast. Also uh, starred in Glow on Netflix as Sam Silvio, who ran a women's professional wrestling outfit and got to play himself last year on The Simpsons, which is my ultimate career aspiration that has not yet come true. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? I am good, Dan. Thank you for having me. Nice to uh, hear your voice again. Nice to hear your voice again, too. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I feel like we should take a moment just to to recognize that in podcasting years, we're both kind of dinosaurs at it's this point. Crazy. We've been doing this a long time. Crazy. It, we, we, yeah, we've been doing it a long time. I think you were probably longer than me, at least, I think. And, you know, now fucking everybody. Yeah, everybody's got a... Katie Kirk's got a podcast. But not just Katie Kirk. Everybody's got a fucking podcast. I think podcast. the guy across the street from me probably has one. I'm, I'm pretty sure my neighbors do. It's like, it's, it's nuts. And now celebrities are being encouraged to have them. If they've been on shows, they found this loophole where if a celebrity has spent many years on a popular show, they can't really use that show as a trademark, but they can get on and talk about their experience on that show with someone else from the show and make a fortune. 
I said like a decade ago, you know, riffing on the famous Andy Warhol quote, that in the future, everybody would have a podcast for 15 episodes. <laughs> and it came true, at least 15 episodes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm really thrilled to have you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, like to just invite smart, interesting, funny people on every once in a while to tackle a couple of sex questions with me because advice, anybody can give it. Literally, says in the dictionary, opinion about what could or should be done. The only qualification you need to give advice is somebody asked you for your opinion, and I'm asking you for yours. Okay, I'm ready. So, this woman discovers after all these years that her friend, when she was talking about her husband, ex-husband, about that person's sobriety and not being sober and being sober, wasn't talking about booze or pills, was talking about porn and jacking off uh, as a famously sober person. What did you think? I I am somebody who believes that porn addiction is a, a real thing, and I, I I do I know people who have been completely you know consumed with it. I I know people who have been the the guys who are you know will spend three to four hours doing it, you know, going after that nut. I do think there's something about the engagement with it over long periods of time that sort of change it that you can it, you operate your brain with a, a certain buzz to it. So I, as a sober guy, I believe that porn addiction happens. My sponsor uh, once framed it as, you know, if you're, if your primary sexual partner is yourself, you better want to make sure you know that. And that's what you want. So, mm-hmm. so I think that, uh, that her, like, however that woman was reacting to her husband, I don't know that we know the, the nuances how, of how, consumed he was but i also know from personal experience that if you watch too much porn it will desensitize you to a certain degree and and create a weird set of expectations if you're not careful i i I hate to be the bearer of bad news or to 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 challenge you but the, the the research is comes out against your position yeah that porn addiction isn't real that it's not a chemical addiction there's not some addiction to the 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 pleasure hormones it releases uh and most people who consider themselves who identify as porn addicts it's a religious thing and they're shaming themselves for having a high libido for you know expressing themselves in particular ways that said even people who don't believe that porn addiction or sex addiction is real believe that people can have obsessive compulsive disorders that focus on sex and porn and that it can become a problem in their lives. But it's the OCD. That's the problem. Porn is just the tool. I guess. I, yeah. They okay, up. okay. I mean, I, I, but you know, obsessive compulsiveness, you know, uh, you know, could it, you know, cocaine is just a problem, but you know, it's, it's really the OCD. That's the issue. Compulsive people are compulsive people. Well, you can become chemically addicted to cocaine. You can't right, become right, well, chemically let's, addicted let's, to let's, pornography. Well, it's, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess that's true, but I mean, I will go by the, the standard set by the, the idea of recovery is that if you are, if, if your life has become unmanageable because of this obsession or this compulsion, not unlike gambling or food or whatever the fuck it is, then, you know, mm-hmm. you have to reckon with it as, you know, within that structure if you choose to do that. And I believe it will work. And I absolutely agree with you. There are definitely people, you know, you can do too much of anything. Right. I can think to gay men all my professional life. It is possible to suck too much dick. Yeah. Just because all the dick in the world is out there and easily available to us doesn't mean we need to put it all in our mouths. And if you're putting it all in your mouth, you might have a problem. So I definitely think porn can become a problem in people's lives, but it's about, 
managing and controlling yourself, not some like mysterious quality in porn where if you're just exposed to enough of it, you're going to tip into an addiction. No, I, yeah, I guess that's, I, I understand what you're saying and I guess that's true, but because of, of how easy it is to get, like when I was a kid, you know, to find porn, you know, it, it just wasn't everywhere. I mean, you buy computers and, you know, they come with porn on them, it seems. So the thing is, I, I feel what you're saying is true, but if you, if you need to suck all that dick all the time, that I mean, you know, you still need other people and you still kind of like got to set time aside for that. You know, it seems with porn that it's a solitary experience and that you can really lock down for hours and hours and then you get yourself into a fog. Everyone who I've known who's been compulsive about porn definitely gets high off of it. Now, whether or not that's not substantiated by science, I just know for a fact that the guys who lock in and ride that fucking orgasm for three to four hours mm-hmm. a day, you know, chasing that one thing. Sure. I mean, that's a, a maybe an overactive libido. Maybe it's a little obsessive, but if you're doing it twice a day or once a day for three to four hours and you're, you're, you're not doing other things in your life or paying attention to the people that are in your life, I, I would say it's an addictive problem. That I agree that is a problem. You know, it's a problem if, you know, you're not showing up for work. It's a problem if you're prioritizing your relationship to cam models over your relationship to your wives or girlfriends or boyfriends uh, or husbands. But just that the science isn't there, that, that there's need, not okay. a chemical. And, you know, if they started putting heroin in the water, okay. we would all soon be addicted to the water. As an addict. A chemical addiction. But yeah, I get you know, it. As an addict, the, 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 there's plenty of porn available. Like I, I, you know, porn is. Whoever thought that it was a great idea to take this thing that most of us have to work on all day long, our laptops, and also make it the the spigot yeah. for porn. Right. Yeah, not a great idea. Maybe it's a little bit more of a control okay. when you have to fish the magazine out from under the bed. Less of a control now, but that control for most of us is internal, and and most of us are able. To, to access it when we want to and not maybe I mean I screw I, our lives I, I, up, I, screw I, our relationships up. I understand that you're hinging your definition of addiction on the science, and that's that's fine. You know, my sense of addiction does not hinge on that. That you know, like what you're calling compulsive behavior or obsessive behavior, still falls into my rubric of what I understand mm. addiction to be. So you're saying that there's no evidence that it creates any different sort of thing in your brain that, you know, would be substantiate the chemical nature of though, you know, if you walk around having an orgasm all the time or you ride the edge of orgasm, if I just think of that, I have to assume that maybe you're telling me is true that whatever I'm feeling has nothing to do with my brain, that when I come and that explosion happens that that has nothing to do with brain chemicals. Okay, I guess. Uh, I don't know the science. But I do know that the way that addiction has been framed to me, that it's, it's, a, it's, not, it's a psychological and it's also a compulsive and obsessive thing. But the framework I work with is if your life is unmanageable because of this thing you do compulsively, then you have a problem. And I can call it an addiction. If the science isn't there, it's fine. Is the science there for people that get addicted to to uh, not paying their bills, to using their credit card too often? Is that science there? Is food, I guess food would be similar to sex in a way. Uh, I mean, is the science there that that's a brain-altering drug? There's Clearly people have food addiction problems and clearly people have gambling addiction problems. So it's, it would seem that, I wonder, this, what are the studies on that? Those seem s- s- similar to me. 
I see what you're saying about about you know that we're kind of having a semantic discussion where I'm trying to talk about science. And also like one of the things that makes me nervous about embracing the addiction model when it comes to sex and porn is most of the organizations and groups out there pushing that understanding, that model, are religious organizations that are always trying to insert themselves between us and our junk and our genitals and our pleasures and stigmatizing what might be for one person just a high libido, not out of control. Yeah. Most people who go to quote unquote sex addiction treatment don't have unmanageable lives. They just have spouses or partners who are unhappy or they're from religious traditions that stigmatize what for anybody else would be a normal, healthy uh, appetite and, and, and libido and interest in sex. Uh, but using your understanding and your framing, you're okay, you, you think it's all right for this woman's friend to describe her husband's or ex-husband's problem as sober or not sober when it comes to being on or off the, the jack-off sites. I think it's okay. I don't know her to be a religious person. You know, I, I mean, however it has affected their lives, that's not clear from that call to me. Uh, but, but no, I don't have any problem with it. But I understand what you're saying, and I've heard this uh, uh, argument before from a sex worker I know around you know porn addiction. Yeah, I'm sorry that religious people use it as a wedge, but the people that I've known in my own experience with porn, you know, are are not mm-hmm. are not you know copping to the addiction or calling it an addiction because they hate women or they're shaming themselves. You know, they're there because they're married and they have a life and, you know, late at night they're spending four to five hours jerking off to porn and it's affecting how they engage, you know, with their significant other or their partner and it's affecting how they, you know, engage with reality in general. So it's not my experience, the religious part of it, but but I, I certainly understand the shame around this stuff. But the guys I'm talking about are fucking animals. They're not. They're... <laughs> <laughs> can we can we keep you on for one more question? Yeah. Hey, Dan. Magnum subscriber here. I'm a gay amateur porn filmmaker from Hawaii, and I do a lot of content using a fuck machine. I'm always pushing the limits of what I can do, both for my own entertainment and to keep my subscribers wanting more. My question is, how long can I safely get fucked in the ass by a fuck machine? I ask this question because I can get fucked for hours without experiencing any physical warning signs. My body says yes, but my logic says that maybe hours of high-intensity anal play are creating micro-tears or other trauma that I'm not fully aware of. There are guys all over the internet shoving super-huge dildos up their ass without issue, but that's mechanically different from a fuck machine, which can thrust into you thousands of times per hour. Does this kind of repeated fucking pose a risk, short-term or otherwise? Note that I never use poppers, drugs, or any kind of numbing agents when I play. I also never get any bleeding. Dan, is there an upper limit to how much activity you should submit your rectum to, especially in regards to a rapidly thrusting fuck machine? So, Mark, how much experience do you have with fuck machines? I have no experience with with fuck machines. Zero. But I I am a human being, and I can... that call was interesting to me because there was a certain I, it, it not it, it wasn't that it felt un, that he was bullshitting, but he he was bragging a little bit. There was a yes. tone to it where it's sort of like, you know, this thing, you know, I can get it, uh, you know, that can, that thing can put a dildo on my ass like a thousand times in an hour. Like the numbers game was, you know, a bit much. But so are you going to ask me what I think of, of that? <laughs> are you, you going to ask me, do I think it's OK, Dan, to get uh 
a dildo slammed no, into I'm your just, ass. I'm just being an asshole. And you're absolutely right to identify it really is less a humble brag, more a cumble brag. And, and I get a lot of questions like that where people just kind of want to share. People want to talk about what they're doing and they'll frame it as a question. Maybe he has a legitimate concern about the upper limits uh, of what his asshole can take. And, you know, I, I just like to Mary Poppins that shit. Mary Poppins said is en- enough is as good as a feast. There has to be a moment where you push back from the table and you pull your ass off the fuck machine. Nobody wants to watch two hours of a dildo slamming in and out of somebody's butt. Like 10 minutes is like the most anybody needs to see that, to get themselves off if they're home alone, uh, struggling with their porn addiction and jacking up. Right. And and also, I think that, uh, you know, this guy seems that we don't have numbers on this. We don't know. You know, they, they, I think this is a fairly new issue. So we're going to have to wait for the studies to come in, Dan. I mean, like, just because this guy's not bleeding and his intestines aren't falling, he doesn't have a prolapsed <laughs> rectum, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, there will come a time. Yeah, he sounds like a fairly young man, but I'm assuming if he goes another couple of years being slamming a, a, a fuck machine dildo into his ass a thousand times an hour, yeah, tell him to check back with you in a couple of years and let's the see how it is. The sphincter is a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. Everyone's fear is the prolapsed rectum. People who get fucked a lot are people who take big toys. They have remarkable control. And they're right. They, they might have remarkable control, but you know, when it does open, there's a sense it might open a little wider. <laughs> It does. That's part of the control thing. Right. They can, right. They can so, will okay. that. Great. Most of us can't consciously will ourselves to open up. But I have seen some porn star power bottoms in my time who have that kind of control. And it is remarkable. And they don't uh, walk around with their guts dragging on the ground behind them. Okay. All right. I mean, look, as long as they're careful when they open it that wide, that things don't fall out, I guess everything's okay. But micro tears are actually a, a, a real concern, particularly if using latex dildos. You obviously want to be using a lot of lube. And I would just say to the, you know, moderation in all things, including occasionally moderation. But I think if you're moderation, making yeah. fuck machine porn, you should be, you should moderate that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true, and I, you know, it's 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 coincidental that I just got my first fuck machine. So this has been an incredible, helpful, you know, thing for me because I didn't know how to approach it. I was nervous. It was a gift, and uh, so now I, I, you're right. I'll just I'll go easy. I'll go easy for a while. Go easy, Mark. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. <laughs> Thanks for talking to me, Dan. And forgive me for that second question. It's no, it was very exciting to me. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay lady. I have a partner. We have a non-monogamous relationship that has been great and has not caused any problems. It's been really good for us. This, this, my partner is an amazing, amazing person and an incredibly supportive partner. And in particular, I have some mental illnesses and some struggles with trauma, including sexual trauma and religious trauma. And my partner has been incredibly supportive and the best friend I could ask for. Our sexual chemistry is great. We have really fun sex that's exploratory. We uh, have been exploring kink together. We've had threesomes together. It's been super, super fun and great. The but is that I don't actually think I'm particularly attracted to my partner, despite having such great sexual chemistry together. She's a bigger person. She's always been a bigger person. And and that has not been an issue for me. You know, I'm attracted to all kinds of women, big, small, doesn't matter. However, uh, my partner has gained quite a bit of weight in addition to her, you know, already overweight stature during the course of our 
three-year relationship. And I've learned about myself that I guess there is kind of a limit at which body size does sort of become an attraction issue for me, which has been, uh, that's taken some soul searching. I struggle with feeling guilty about that, but there it is. It's, it's a feeling and I feel it. You know, it would be silly for me to walk away from everything that's so amazing about this relationship, but attraction, physical attraction is really important to me, especially because I grew up fundamentalist Christian and have carefully, carefully learned how to ignore my own physical desires. And so now I'm trying to sort of bring my physical desires back to more of a priority in my life. Dan, what do you think? Your partner brings a lot to the table. You describe the relationship as great, as loving, that you say there are no problems and that your partner is there for you in a way, uh, emotionally, uh, that that's extremely helpful with your, your mental health challenges. And you have an open relationship and you have you know sexual connections with others and you're still having amazing sex, you say, I'm just quoting you back to you, with your partner despite the fact that she has put on a lot of weight. So there's nothing about the size that your partner currently is that is preventing you from connecting emotionally or sexually with your partner. There are times in our lives where we connect with our partners, not necessarily around the physical, but around what we're doing together with our partner. It sounds like you're there, that you are able to connect with her sexually. And it's not about this overwhelming physical attraction, but about all sorts of things that transcend the physical that your partner brings to the table. If your partner had put on a tremendous amount of weight and you were no longer physically attracted to her and there was nothing else in the relationship to keep you there because it was high conflict, because your partner wasn't supportive professionally, emotionally, uh, you know, because you wanted to open the relationship, the partner wanted a closed relationship, your partner was shutting you down sexually in important ways, and you were sexually frustrated and unfulfilled in the relationship. Well, then I would say, for fuck's sake, go. But here you are. You're in this relationship with this amazing woman who was a woman of size when you met her, but now you've discovered that there's a certain point past which size becomes a problem for you erotically. But obviously not such an enormous, pardon me, not such a big, there's no way to avoid those words, enormous or big problem that it prevents you from connecting with your partner at the size she's at now. You describe yourself as connecting with her at the size she's at now, not just emotionally, but sexually. You know, I don't know how to frame this except to say, because I don't want to get in trouble for telling people to, you know, criticize their partner's bodies. That has become taboo in relationships. But in my relationship, if my husband suddenly put on 100 pounds, I would have something to say about it. I would encourage him to eat better. I would encourage him to take better care of himself. Not because he's ever going to be, you know, the 130-pound twink I met 25 years ago. Those days are past. His body is very different now than it once was. But because I would be concerned for his health, for his joints, for his knees. I would be concerned about diabetes. We're often told that married people and partnered people live longer. And that's because married people and partnered people have someone in their life who says, oh, my God, take your medication. Oh, my God, you've been complaining about that for a month. Go to the goddamn doctor. I'm going to take you to the doctor myself. Some of what contributes to a partnered or married person's longevity is frankly nagging and somebody keeping after you to, to look after yourself, to take better care of yourself. You're obviously, if you express that to your partner, not telling her you want her to be 120 pounds or a size zero. If you express to your partner your concern about 
the amount of weight she's put on recently seems to me that that's what you're there as her long-term partner to do, that that is a responsibility, recognizing that this is for many people, particularly for larger people who have been shamed about their bodies, a sore subject, something that is difficult to talk about. And you're going to have to deploy your best skills emotionally. You're going to have to demonstrate that you have high emotional IQ. And one of the ways you do that sometimes is knowing what to leave out. If you go to your partner and say, you've gained so much weight that my attraction to you has lessened and that is a problem for me, I don't think that that's going to elicit the reaction you would like. I think that would be painful. So I think there's a way you talk to your partner about her recent weight gain that doesn't center your own desires, that centers her health while recognizing that a lot of people frame their fat shaming and criticisms of larger people with bullshit health concerns. But there's a point at which those concerns, I think, are valid. And finally, you talk about being raised in a fundamentalist household and having to work past a lot of shame and the way that kind of upbringing invalidates your desires and you want to own your desires. Well, you are in an open relationship. And so you are still able to act on physical attraction to the body types. And it sounds like you're attracted to a wide variety of body types. You're able to act on those physical attractions with others while at the same time you are capable of having rewarding and meaningful sexual encounters and a powerful erotic connection with your girlfriend at the size she's at now. So it's not an either or choice. You don't have to choose physical attraction versus the kind of emotionally transcendent sexual connection you have with your girlfriend. You don't have to pick one or the other because you're in an open relationship. You can have both. Hi, Dan. I am from Kansas City, Missouri. I was just wondering, do you think it is unlikely to sustain a sexual relationship that is heteronormative and monogamous for a lifetime? I married my husband three years ago, but we've been together for 10, and I was a virgin when I met him at 19 years old. To my estimation, we have a successful and thrilling sex life, and I was just wondering, do you think that that is optimistic of me to assume that it will always continue in that manner, or do you think that I should expect to eventually get bored and venture into these risky sexual avenues that you have broadened my horizons and opened me up to. I absolutely 100% believe that a heteronormative monogamous relationship can over the long haul, that the sexual connection, that erotic connection can be sustained, but you can't assume it will happen. That's the word you use. You, you want to assume that this will happen, that it can always be this way. You have to make an effort to sustain that erotic connection. I've said, and I like to say that at the beginning of a relationship, you're the exciting adventure that your partner is on. They're the exciting adventure that you are on. You reach a point where you're no longer the adventure and they're no longer the adventure. You're a known quantity. They're a known quantity. That has benefits around comfort and intimacy and familiarity and, and, and emotional support. You know, this person really knows you. But that, you know, merging, that, that, that kind of intimacy can be a threat to the erotic spark, which is sustained by difference and, and unknowability. 
Esther Perel frames it, I think, beautifully when she says, you know, the problem in a long-term relationship is how do you, you know, desire, to desire is to want. How do you want what you still have or how do you want what you already have? Well, that requires some thought and effort. For some people, the, you know, the effort and, and the thought goes toward opening the relationship, adventures with other people, some allowance for outside sexual contact or outside, you know, even just flirtatious affirmation. But if you want to sustain it in a long-term heteronormative monogamous relationship, you know, even if you want to sustain the erotic connection in a long-term non-heteronormative homo non-monogamous relationship, you have to make an effort. And I think it's around, you know, that, that, that sense that you were the adventure, they were the adventure. Now you two have to go on adventures together. That doesn't mean you have to open the relationship. It just means you have to challenge each other while recognizing that you're never going to have as much sex as you did at the beginning of the relationship. You want to create opportunities where you may be having sex less often, but when you do have sex, it is great sex and good sex and exciting sex which requires you to break out of your routines. 10 years into a marriage, 10 years into a relationship, you are probably you probably have a sexual routine. There may be a time and a place where you usually have sex. You're going to get bored. Boredom is the real enemy, particularly of female desire in a long-term opposite sex relationship. Boredom is a, an existential threat to that sexual connection. So you have to together link arms and fight boredom, create adventures, create challenges for yourself. You know, at the start of the relationship, you were the mystery, you were the adventure, he was the mystery, he was the adventure. It was probably even a little bit scary because you're taking a risk those first times you get undressed in front of somebody else, make yourself vulnerable, allow this person into your bed, your body, your life, your mouth. It's scary. Well, find places to do it and ways to do it where you – Elicit some of that erotic fear response that was just built into the relationship at the start 10, 20 years in, which can just mean do it on the roof, which can mean go to a sex club but only mess around with each other. It can mean, you know, create some online videos, you know, put stuff on XTube without your faces showing. Take risks together. Identify the ways in which it would be pleasurable for both of you to really put yourselves out there, to go on an adventure together. It is so crucially important. It is the one thing that you can do that can save a relationship, that can keep the relationship sexual and exciting and prevent you from stewing in resentment, prevent your partner from stewing in resentment. And the feeling may not be exactly mutual and equal where I'm bored, you're bored, let's make an effort. It may be one person is bored and the other person is completely satisfied. Well, if one person is bored, that is a problem for both people even if one person is completely satisfied with the routine and the ruts. And you're going to have to insist then as the bored partner about breaking the mold, about going on adventures together. And I think it helps if the board partner communicates to the partner who is completely satisfied with the rut and the routine that the reason they want to break the mold, the reason they want to go on these adventures is because the connection is so important to them. Their partner is so important to them that they want to do this, not have this done for them, but do this for each other and do it together. Hi, Dan. We're calling from quarantine here in Denver. And my girlfriend and I were just wondering if it's safe to put sweets specifically caramello in our vagina to eat it out your input is greatly appreciated here's my input 
don't put that in your vagina. Don't put food in your vagina. I don't, you know, even if it was safe, and it's not necessarily safe, introducing particularly sweet foods into your vagina can upset your pH balance. You can wind up with bacterial vaginosis. You don't want bacterial vaginosis. But even if you could, even if it was safe to stuff a candy bar up your twat, why would you want to? You know, one of the first like quote unquote sexually adventurous or kinky things I did as a very young person was use whipped cream because I'd heard that was a thing that sometimes adults did when they were getting wild. And 10 minutes later, the whipped cream, you know, basically melts on your body and it smells like a, a baby barfed on you. There's nothing sexy about it. We have so many opportunities as Americans to eat caramello and to eat chocolate sauce and to eat whipped cream. We don't need to incorporate the ingestion of those food products into sex. Hopefully your girlfriend's vagina tastes good enough without the Carmelo pouring out of it. All that said, if you really must, there is a way to do this safely. And that is to put a female condom in your girlfriend's vagina and fill the female condom with Carmelo. And then she can... Kegel it out all over your face. But I don't see what's so sexy about that. My advice is always to have sex, then dessert. Don't combine dessert with sex. Hey, Dan, 29-year-old Bill, <laughs> long-time <laughs> listener, first-time caller. This isn't a question about me. It's a question about one of my friends who is in the dilemma of being very in love with a girl. Uh, they have a great time together. Um, he's really attracted to her, but he despises the smell of her pussy. And this is a guy who likes eating pussy. He even eats ass. And, you know, so he's not like a squeamish about pussy guy. But he says that her pussy smells really off-putting. Uh, not only that, but he says that her previous boyfriend wouldn't have sex with her. He would always make an excuse right before they had sex. So he thinks that this might be something that's, that other men have noticed. So, yeah, we just wondered if you had any advice. Um, you know, should he tell her? Uh, is this a common condition? Is it something that's preventable? Or is it just, you know, that they're not vibing and that he doesn't like the smell of her pussy? Uh, this is such a tough one because your friend could be the problem, but it's possible that his new girlfriend herself has a problem. Your friend is able to get his nose close to this girl's pussy in a way that unless she's in Cirque du Soleil, she's not. And he may have noticed uh, a strong odor that she hasn't noticed. It could be bacterial vaginosis. We talked about that in the last call. There are other medical conditions that can cause a bacterial imbalance that can lead to a strong an unpleasant vaginal odor. It is a difficult subject for a partner, male or female, to broach because so many women feel self-conscious about their bodies, feel self-conscious about their vaginas, have been bombarded with cultural messaging about needing to clean their vaginas, which are actually self-cleaning and do not be, need to be cleaned, but occasionally do need medical attention to address a problem. Now, bacterial vaginosis is often accompanied by discharge uh, and itching and irritation, but not always. And there are other conditions that can upset the pH balance in the vagina and, and cause a sort of 
bacterial problem uh, that results in odor only without discharge, without irritation. And without discharge or irritation, a woman might not think to go see the OBGYN or raise the subject or even know to raise the subject because they weren't able to get their noses down in their crotches the way their boyfriends were. The trick here is for the boyfriend to just be super sensitive about it. It would be insensitive to say, hey, I love eating ass, so yeah, I'll eat an ass. (laughs) That would not be the way to address it. What the boyfriend wants to do is say, I'm concerned for you. Uh, I only bring this up uh, out of concern for you. And this is something that I've noticed that maybe you haven't noticed that perhaps it needs to be addressed. And I don't say this as someone who doesn't love pussy, doesn't know that Pussies can have different scents and people, individuals have different scents and that's true for men and women but the the smell is concerning and I think you need to address it with an OBGYN because it doesn't doesn't fall in the typical range of scent and odor differences. It seems to be perhaps a problem. That can be an upsetting thing to hear but sometimes it's a thing that a person – needs to hear. And after they go get checked out, if indeed there was a problem, as upsetting as it was to hear it in the first place, a thing that a person will be grateful to have been told. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s female and have been with my partner for seven years. From early on, I knew his masturbation is kinky. I won't go too much into detail, but he wears female clothing and imagines himself as a woman fucking another woman. But our sex life is great. He's dominant and masculine, just how I like it. This feminine side he has doesn't turn me on, but I'm respectful and open-minded of it. I've tried to have him come out of the closet as queer, but he shuts that down, probably because of the shame. I've even encouraged him to seek a woman who's turned on by cross-dressing, but he doesn't want that either. So now we're at a standstill and rarely talk about it. What's your perspective, Dan? Your boyfriend is entitled to a zone of erotic autonomy, entitled to some privacy. He has a a fantasy that he likes to explore solo during masturbation, and you need to back the fuck off and stop telling him he needs to identify as queer. And if this isn't something that he wants to explore... IRL in real life, if this is something that he wants to keep as a fantasy and masturbate about, you have to respect that. There may come a time when he does want to identify as queer or experiment with his gender expression publicly or maybe actually connect with someone who wants to play with him you know, while he's cross-dressed and you probably assume, I'm presuming you don't want to play with him when he's cross-dressed. You don't want to explore this with him, but you've encouraged him perhaps to explore with others. So he knows that he has a loving partner who would be willing to go there with him if he ever wants to go there, but you can't rush him anymore or push him or bully him anymore. He doesn't owe you a queer identity. He doesn't owe himself identifying as queer necessarily. And if this isn't something he wants to do 
with another person or it would ruin it to do it with another person for him because in his fantasies, it's perfect. And in reality, it's not, it's going to fall short. He doesn't have to do it for you. If he wants to do it for him, great. And he knows that if that day ever comes when he wants to do it, it's okay with his girlfriend. Now you need to shut up about it. Now you need to back off. Now you need to let it go and stop policing your boyfriend's gender identity, his gender expression, his masturbatory fantasies, his desire to be with somebody else. If indeed he has any desire to be with anybody else. And right now it doesn't sound like he does. So back the fuck off. Enjoy the the sexual connection that you two have together and stop making a problem out of what is not a problem. Everybody masturbates. I assume you masturbate too at times. Lots of people have fantasies that they explore when they masturbate, some things that they like to think about and they have zero interest in exploring it during partnered sex. And you just have to accept that as your boyfriend's truth. It may change. There may come a time where that's not his truth anymore, where he does want to explore it with somebody else, or maybe explore it with you. And when that time comes, when he brings it up, then you can go there. <laughs> right now, right now, you just need to back way the fuck up and back way the fuck off. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Brisk Youth. I have a wedding question or a potential wedding question. I've been with my partner for three and a half years, approaching four, and I had plans to propose to her um, around Memorial Day weekend, which also coincides with my birthday, for about four to five months now. Um, However, I made those plans before the current pandemic that our world is facing right now. I had plans to invite friends and family, uh, do a private proposal, and then have everyone meet and have a party. The proposal itself would have been in Austin, and that where my family is from. Her family and friends are from Houston, which is about a two and a half to three hour drive from Austin. I'm wondering if it's not a good idea to have something like that with friends and family, especially those would who would have to drive in you know some of those folks would fall in the at-risk category just based on age like my parents for example and I also want to know if it's a bad sign to cancel something like that you know she doesn't know it would be a surprise I had made plans to you know surprise her in this way and especially having her friends and family because her friend her family is not particularly supportive um, but I had got them all on board to have to be a part of this proposal so my question to y'all is to help me figure out if it's socially responsible to still have something like that if I should make it more private if I should just move it and postpone it period you know I don't know if I feel that great making such a life-changing decision in the midst of such a stressful and pressing time for our our world right now, you know, our relationship has been somewhat affected, not completely, but it is stressful in general, these times that we live in. So I wonder if it's even a good idea to have it now or postpone it or just have a private personal one. It is not a good idea, obviously, at this moment 
to gather together a large group of friends and family, including people who are at high risk of dying like your parents for an engagement party. I'm also opposed to proposals that are stunts. And the, what you describe is less of a stunt than some proposals, like, you know, flash mob proposals and a lot of singing and dancing. I think it puts pressure on the person who is being proposed to, particularly if they know they're being filmed for YouTube, to not ruin that moment by saying no. But people have a right to say no. People need to, if the answer is no, in a way, be encouraged to say no or feel free to say no. And there's just something so creepily manipulative about a big show-offy, showy, showboaty, Broadway floor show proposal. That's not what you've rolled out. You want to propose to her privately and then have a big party. Okay, what if she says no? You propose to her privately. You say that your relationship's under strain. If you violate all of the best advice we're getting from public health officials and bring all these people together in a room for the proposal party, what if your girlfriend says no, that she doesn't want to get married and then all of these people have traveled and put themselves at risk of death to celebrate an engagement that didn't happen? I feel like a proposal is or should be between two people and private so that the person who is being proposed to can make a decision in that moment, can decide whether to say yes or say no without any additional pressure other than the, the, the question itself and you know their, their feelings for that person, their desire to please that person, to avoid hurting that person even if they don't want to marry that person. And the presence of singing, dancing, making assholes of themselves, flash mob, puts an unfair amount of pressure on the person who's been asked. And in your case, I think it would be particularly devastating if the answer was no, if you had planned this big party that presumed a yes in advance of you actually getting that yes. The party is the wedding. No proposal party. This endless sort of accumulation of additional events and parties around a marriage. We just have to draw a line and say no, particularly now when it's not safe for people to get together to have a party in the first place. And it's often a problem that people who are thinking about getting married, who are actually getting married or planning their weddings can lose sight of other people can begin to feel like they are the center of the universe, can contemplate things like impossibly expensive destination weddings that will impoverish your friends and family that you can't afford to treat them to, but they are under a kind of moral familial pressure to show up at. Or, you know, alternatively, lose sight of other people's health and contemplate seriously contemplate dragging inviting all those people to come together at this moment in the middle of this pandemic and risk their lives to celebrate the yes you may have gotten or to mourn together with you the no you could get yeah no you know that's wrong you know not to do that when you said you know my parents who are at high rate yeah you know this would be wrong but it's wrong not just for pandemic reasons even in the absence of a pandemic, this would be wrong. 
propose in private, celebrate the wedding in public with friends and family. Don't drag your friends and family into your proposals. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 24-year-old woman in a relationship with a 32-year-old man. And my question is, how would you go about breaking up with an emotionally abusive partner who has threatened suicide? Um, We've been together for about two years now, and most of that time we've been living together either in an SUV, traveling the country, or couch surfing. I've been joking to people that we were isolating before it was cool. Uh, I've been aware that he was emotionally abusive for a while, but whenever I'd get close to leaving, things seemed to get better, or I'd make excuses for his mental health and end up making even bigger commitments. Um, We've been living together in a camper we own for a few months now, and after talking with a friend, came to the realization that this relationship is awful for my own mental health and I need to leave. The logistics will be difficult, but I'm ready to give him our camper and my car, just cut my losses and fly back across the country to live with my friend until I can get on my feet. The only problem is the actual breakup. I know he's going to try to fight it and I think he's going to end up killing himself if not that night then within a few months i want to leave him in the best condition i possibly can but i also don't want to make myself vulnerable for my guilt and empathy to suck me back in for another time (laughs) i know it's going to be messy no matter what but it feels like if i don't succeed this time i'm going to be trapped in this relationship forever (laughs) so i'd be really grateful for any advice you can give or even just a pep talk because I'm really nervous about this and want to set myself up for the best chances of success. Don't ask for his permission to leave. Just go. Don't exactly ghost. I think you should leave him a note, but you should just go. At the bottom of the note, you can put the National Suicide Hotline number so he can call if he's so motivated. But you are not obligated to stay in this relationship for the next, what, 50 plus years because this guy has taken a hostage. Stop negotiating with this terrorist. He's terrorizing you into staying in this relationship by threatening to harm himself. In almost all cases, those threats are empty. Rarely does someone who makes this kind of threat harm himself after his partner leaves. It is far likelier that he may try to harm you when you leave than harm himself. You should go. You should just leave without asking, without breaking up, without breaking up face-to-face. If he has complaints about breaking up face-to-face, you can point later, if you're in contact with him at all, to all the times you tried to break up with him face-to-face and he bullied or pressured or threatened you by threatening himself into staying in this relationship that you absolutely positively needed to get out of then and need to get out of now. You've made your escape plan. You have a place to go. You have somebody who's going to support you. I fully support this idea of just like letting him have the RV, cutting your fucking losses and getting the fuck out. But do it. 
you hesitate to do it because you dread the conversation that you seem to think you're obligated to have with him, the permission that you are obligated to seek from him to leave. You don't need his permission to go. And you don't need to have this conversation about breaking up with him again. You've tried to have that conversation and he has convinced you that you're not allowed to go. Some people are able to do this. I don't know how they're able to do this. They convince people who want to break up with them that they aren't able to go without the consent of the person they're trying to dump. This is the only aspect of romantic relationships and sexual relationships where consent is irrelevant. You do not need this person, someone's consent to leave them. You are entitled to go. You need someone's consent to put a finger on their butt. You need someone's consent to kiss them, to hold them, to touch them. You don't need someone's consent to leave. Just go. Write them a letter. Explain that it's over. This isn't the opening of new negotiations around getting back together. This is it. It is over. And leave. And you know, I hate to say this and I get in trouble for this, but worst comes to worst and he does kill himself, that is on him. That is not on you. He had problems, bigger problems than your presence could ever have resolved if the normal comings and goings of romantic partners pushes him over the edge and he offs himself. A relationship is something that you have to feel free to enter into and something you have to feel free to exit. It can be you know, longer together. It can be more difficult logistically to exit a relationship. But you still have to feel free to exit. Otherwise, it's a trap. He's not a trap door that you fell through one day and you are now stuck forever wherever it is you dropped. Go, go, go. Get out, get out, get out. And to avoid being dragged into negotiations or to be on the receiving end of his threats of self-harm that he's issuing to manipulate you, block him. Block his numbers, block his email, but please do give us a call when you get to your friend's house and you're safe. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. This is more of a comment than a question, and it's not quite a sexy COVID love story, but I just got a text message from one of my FWBs, and I live alone, so I haven't seen him in a few months now, and it's breaking my heart a little bit, or maybe breaking my dick a little bit, but that's fine. Uh, and hearing from him totally made my day and just made me feel a lot better. So if you have an FWB out there who you know lives alone, reach out to them, say hi, tell them you're thinking about them. I know we played a similar call a few weeks ago, but I wanted to play your call as well because I endorse this practice. There are a lot of people out there with FWBs. There are a lot of people out there in open relationships who have secondary partners or occasional partners who are alone and live alone and don't have the benefit of sheltering in place with somebody that they feel close to, aren't having any sex, but also aren't feeling seen or remembered or thought of. And it really can help someone at a moment where we're all struggling just to reach out, just to let them know that you're thinking of them. And FWB, for me, always the most important letter is F. It's friends with benefits. Sometimes people worry that, you know, it's just an FWB, it's just a fuck buddy relationship. And if I show any concern for this person's feelings, if I reach out to them, they may misinterpret that as an interest in something more or a commitment or, a, you know, a committed romantic relationship. No, 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 no. <laughs> don't, don't fall into that narcissistic 
self-regard where you think that if you show the slightest human decency and concern for a sex partner that they're going to suddenly think that you've proposed marriage to them. Don't, don't, don't do that. Err on the side of showing some uh, affection and concern of being your FWB's F, their friend. Reach out to them, obviously, per this caller. And thank you for calling, caller. It can make a difference. It can really make somebody's day. All right, before we get to response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Alec Adam tweeted, it's day something of quarantine, and I'm so glad I made it out of the grocery store before at Fake Dan Savage explained exactly how to finger a man on this week's Savage Lovecast. Now that I'm home, I'm going to run a bath and play that again. Hope you enjoyed our bath time, Adam. Ethley Ann Vare tweets, Hey at Fake Dan Savage, I get your concept of stay sane and stay married, and I co-sign under some circumstances, but financial dependence, i.e. I don't want to give up my meal ticket, is a shitty excuse for cheating on a spouse. All right, that is sometimes the circumstance, but when financial dependence is cited, it's not always the person doing the cheating who's the financially dependent one. Often... Maybe just as often, it is the cheater, someone cheating with cause, who doesn't want to leave and impoverish the person they're cheating on. Infidelity, it's always more complicated than people want to pretend it is. And finally, Amy Falconrath tweets, Oh man, can I please request that the phrase, eat the shit out of your pussy, not be repeated on the Savage Lovecast. Okay, yeah, you got a point there. We will avoid that phrase in future. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, please be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response call to the man who's asking if it is ethical to get into a relationship with a woman hoping that she changes her stance on no sex before marriage. I think your advice about figuring out exactly what that means is great because it could mean no kissing, but it could also mean everything but PIV. On the other hand, I'm a little concerned with the rest of your advice because you told him her getting into a relationship with him could mean that she's okay with the fact that he does want to have sex, but it seems like of the two of them, she's actually the one who talked to him about what she wants and what she expects, and it's actually in his court to decide whether he's okay with that. So I feel like him going back to her and saying, I know you already told me what your price of admission is, but here's my price of admission. Now you decide yes or no. It seems like that was already done by her. And now he's the one who just needs to say, okay, I can deal with that or okay, I can't. And if he just gets into a relationship, if I were her, I would assume that he is okay with what she already told him about not having sex. And Dan, just in responding to somebody who is a sub bound and gag who can't necessarily say a safe word, what about humming? Try this the next time that you or put it out to your listeners, one of them may be bound and gagged. Try humming, modulating your tone. Happy birthday to you as a safe word works wonders. Hi, Dan. I have the perfect word. I think it's the perfect word for female ejaculate that you've been looking for. Weminade. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Or better than calling that number, you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone and email us your question at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. 
My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival made its online debut this weekend. It streamed to thousands of happy hump fans and happy new hump fans all over the world. There are still tickets available for every weekend through June 12th, including a special time for European humpers. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find a time that works for you and grab your tickets. And this is a perfect time to get busy making a film for hump, either with a friend, a partner, even solo, someone you live with, someone you're sheltering with. Go to humpfilmfest.com and learn how to submit your film. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Check out the WTF podcast with Mark Marin as well as Mark Maron's new special, End Times Fun, streaming now on Netflix. And of course, follow Mark Maron on Twitter at Mark. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading, and please stay safe.